Good morning, Grace. Before we get into the sermon this morning, I, um, I want to pray, and specifically want to pray in light of uh, the events of this week, uh, the violence that took place on Tuesday night um, in, in Georgia. Um, and, and certainly, it, it, this, these are just reminders that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and um, the events of Tuesday night, I don't want to go into detail. I, I know that, that um, people of various ages uh, are listening and so I want to be sensitive to that. But we know that whether these, this violence is, is racially motivated, sexually motivated, it is evil, and it is not of God, and is to be condemned. And, and it causes us to, 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 to cry out, Lord, have mercy. And, um, and, and following those events and into Wednesday morning, I was, I was really on, on my knees before God, asking, just asking him really how to pray. And, and people in our community came to mind and, and um, who might be feeling this very acutely. And, and, and I sent an email and, and just a note um, wanting to, to hear and, and, and listen. Um, and and person res- many people responded, but one person responded, and um, a friend, and, and she was just letting me know the ways that, that she was praying, an, an Asian American woman. Uh, and I found this prayer to be really helpful in, in my prayers and, and want to read what it is she said, and then um, bring that before God as we pray together. And she said, it is horrific, speaking about what happened. I'm still trying to wrap my brain, heart, spirit around this. All I can think of for now is to pray for God's mighty and transformative mercy on our nation and for healing from the deep and destructive sin of racial hatred. Lord, have mercy. Bring comfort and protection to the victims and their hurting families and communities. But also, Lord, have mercy on those whose humanity is so thoroughly disfigured by anger and hate. Root out this evil and blot it out with the light of your love and perfect justice. So with that, God, we do ask, we implore, we beg that you would have mercy. That your mighty and transformative mercy, um, that that it would bring our nation, that it would bring healing to our nation from the deep and destructive sin of racial hatred. God, we ask that you would bring comfort and protection to the victims and their hurting families and their communities. Lord, we pray that you'd have mercy on those whose humanity is disfigured by anger and hate. God, we ask that you, by your power, root out this evil and blot it out with the light of your love and perfect justice. God, we We cry out to you because you are a God who hears, and we know that when you are a God who hears and listens, that you are a God who acts. And so, God, in response to this this destruction, in response to this, this brokenness, God, we ask that you would that you would bring your, your light of perfect love and justice, that you would show your mercy. God, that you'd help us to be a community of people who bear witness to your love, to your mercy, to your justice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is our final week in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope that God has been at work in your life as he has been in mine through this unique book. Uh, And I'd actually love to hear uh, some of the ways that you feel like God has been, has been revealing himself, uh, challenging you, 
teaching you, shepherding you um, as we've been going through Ecclesiastes and, and what you've taken up even in your own reading in terms of what you've been thinking about as you read through Ecclesiastes or the conversations that perhaps the book um, and, and the, the complexities of the book, like that, that what, what that does for your conversations and the things that you, you discuss perhaps with others and, um, and even in your life with God. Like what are some of the things that, that you feel like God has been revealing to you and teaching you through this time. I want to hear those. I think we as a community would love to, to hear those. And so you can share them with me. Uh, you can email me, dlong at gracelb.org. Um, if you don't want to share them with me, fine. You, but I would love for you to, to share it with others. I think that's, I just think that's good for us to hear the ways that God is, is speaking to us as a community. So we've been on a journey in the book of Ecclesiastes with the teachers. He dismantles all of the various ways that we search for meaning in our lives under the sun, whether through pleasure, whether through work, whether through the ways that we understand and interact with God, the teacher is constantly deconstructing and, and undermining those ways that, that perhaps we weren't even aware of, of how we, we hold on and grasp for, for a certain type of meaning. And what the teacher, of course, is doing is, is wanting to remind us that we cannot control or master this life. We cannot master God, and we cannot master the way of the world. And, of course, we know that this is so clear because the teacher is constantly reminding us, holding over us the specter of death, that this becomes the picture of our inability to control and to master and so then what the teacher then shows us through this book is, so what is left then to do is to receive the portion that God has given to us um, in our time and in our work and even in our, in our interactions and understanding with God. And again, that refrain to, to, to eat, to drink, and to be merry, for this is the gift that God has given us. And, and again, it's, it's not only a gift that God gives to us, but he also gives us the gift of being able to enjoy the gift, um, that, this, that these, are, these are opportunities that God has given to us um, to, in our life under the sun. And all in all, the book, again, of Ecclesiastes is, is trying to compel us into the way of wisdom, that wisdom contains and, and, and means wrestling with all of these various things, means asking these hard questions means recognizing that we cannot control or master life. It, it, the wisdom is wanting to reveal to us what the good life is and also what a wise way of living within that good life um, looks like. And again, this is a countercultural message. The Ecclesiastes is countercultural because so many of the things that it's deconstructing and dismantling are all of the ways that we, that, that we have sought in our lives uh, to control, to make meaning, and it's wanting to um, detach, pull us away. I think I described last week that the book of Ecclesiastes is something like, like a bath, um, wanting to wash us clean of the, the various ways that we, that we seek to live life on our own terms. So as I've been going through Ecclesiastes, as we've been going through Ecclesiastes, it's been my prayer that God would help us, help me have the ears to hear the wisdom that's offered and to live in light of that wisdom. So this morning, we're ending our series. We're looking at the final chapter of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, and the final passage. And I want to, 
consider the ways that, that this book is, is offering to us a reminder, a caution, and then a recentering. I believe this passage at the end is offering us a reminder, a caution, and a recentering. So first, by way of a reminder, as we see in Ecclesiastes 12:8, we see vanity of vanities, this phrase again, this word, havel, vanity of vanities, says the teacher, all is vanity. Now, I suggested at the very beginning of this series that there are two speakers in Ecclesiastes. There's both the narrator and there's the teacher. And that the teacher has, has the stage for most of the time. And that the narrator begins and ends the book. And so we see the narrator being picked up here again in verse 8, speaking of the teacher in the third person. And so the teacher, like, or the, the, sorry, the narrator, like he did at the beginning of the book, summarizes everything we've just heard. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we see the narrator's summary of what we will hear. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Again, this havel, this idea of absurdity or, or life being an enigma. Uh, and, and that's the summary of what the, we're going to hear from the teacher. And then the narrator picks it up again in precisely the same terms. Verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the teacher, all is vanity. And so this is a reminder, again, that we've been pulled into this conversation, to this journey, to this ongoing dialogue of the teacher, of the narrator, as we think about this life and even life with God within this life. And as I suggested at the beginning, to pay attention to your responses, your interactions with the text and what it's revealing within you. And so I'm curious what you've had revealed to you as you've been reading? What have you wanted to accept? What have you wanted to reject? What have you wanted to distance yourself from? What do you feel is, has a very deep resonance in your, in your mind, in your soul? Those are things to pay attention to now that we're on this side of going through Ecclesiastes. So now we're a part where we're seeing uh, the narrator then poke his head back into the conversation and to really speak to his son and to tell his son the things to glean from this teacher. And so we see verse 9, Besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. The teacher sought to find pleasing words, and he, he wrote words of truth plainly. And he describes the sayings. The sayings of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. So we have the narrator, and this is really important. The narrator is not dismissing anything that the teacher has said. Now, we might have a temptation as we've read through Ecclesiastes to think, well, that can't be right. There's got to be something. That, that doesn't seem like right or correct theology. But the narrator does not poke his head in here at the end to correct the teacher, but rather to suggest that what we have heard is in some way somehow connected to wisdom. Then he describes what the words are like, the function that they are to have. The sayings of the wise are like goads in, in verse 11, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. So what is this saying? The, the wise words are like goads. Well, goads are, are think of spurs. Like if somebody is riding a horse and there are spurs that they, that they 
you know, hit into the sides of the horse to get the horse to go, that is a goad. If something is fixed on the end of, of a staff to, to prod sheep to get them moving, there's this sense of, in which that the words of the teacher are to, are to compel us, are to shock us, are in a way to wake us up and to get us moving in a direction, moving toward wisdom. Now, as I think about this picture, as I think about these words of the teacher and how I'm to think about them, as the narrator suggests, I realize that one of the things Ecclesiastes does is it wakes me up. It wakes me up from just this assumption that I live with all the time that this is my life and everybody else is just living in it. That this life is mine. People just are, are kind of actors in my story. Ecclesiastes is, is constantly dismantling and deconstructing that idea. And I need to be awakened from that false reality that is so easy to get caught up in, to live into. Instead of thinking about what does my life look like in, in relation to who God has revealed himself to be, I start with the assumption that I am the beginning and the end and it is from there that I then move toward living my life and making the decisions that I make. And these wise words of the teacher are like goads waking me up out of that, like, like a splash of cold water on my face, pulling me out of that malaise or that stupor that is so easy to live in, that our culture that we often live in. And sometimes this might look like a, this, this, this being woken up, uh, is, as we've seen the teacher do, is a, is a, a real um, undermining of, of just our approach to life. What do you mean that, that our work uh, it doesn't matter as much as I thought, thought it did? What do you mean that, that these crises of faith uh, are, are in some ways to propel us and compel us into perhaps deeper trust in God. We need to be woken up often out of our usual streams that we live in, that we seem to flow in, to find a better, more full way, a wise way of living and approaching the good life. The narrator here is reminding us that these are the ways that the words of the teacher function. This is what it's calling us to do. This is the reminder that the narrator is giving to us of how we're to understand what has been said. But then the narrator also offers us a caution, offers his son a caution. Verse 12, of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a wariness of the flesh. See, although the narrator affirms what the teacher has said, there is a caution. Now, this isn't like an anti-intellectualism thing going on here, but it's actually a heavy dose of realism. And the narrator wants his child to grasp this. In effect, he's saying, in this life under the sun, there are so many questions that one can ask. So many questions one can ask about the complexities, about the absurdities, about the enigmas of life. There are so many questions of those questions, there are no end. We might ask why things are the way that they are, 
or why people do the things that they do? Or why is it that we work so hard for this if we are only going to die and that we will not be remembered and then the generation after us will profit from what we do? I mean, all of these questions that we can be plagued with, these real deep existential questions that we've no doubt felt at different times. And it certainly, as I think about it, different generations have felt these more strongly than others and for various reasons. And what the narrator is wanting to remind the child of is to not pursue the project beyond what the teacher has already done. So much of the deconstruction work, so much of the questioning, so much of the wrestling and the struggling has been done by the teacher. The questions have already been raised and we see that there are very few little answers to them. And so I'm going to caution you, the narrator is saying to his child, to continue that project. Because to assume that one can see completely and understand completely all that there is by just viewing this life under the sun will lead to despair. It will lead to a sense of weariness. He's telling the child, don't take up the same project. It's already been done for you. Take these words seriously. Take these wrestlings and these struggles seriously. Let them be, let them be a balm to you. Let them, let them um, make you aware of your own experience. Let them validate how you, how you are actually thinking about life. But to assume that you can get any further than the teacher in your questioning or in your wrestling is a fool's errand. It is a weariness of the flesh. And I find this really humbling. I find this really humbling here as a person in 2021 who has access to so much information. I can know so much about so many things right away. It's in the palm of my hand. It's in the palm of your hand. And we think that we have the power and the opportunity to know and to understand completely and wholly how everything's supposed to work. And so we try and we grasp. And again, it's another, this knowledge, this understanding is another form of control, another form of attempting to master our own fates, our own lives. And the, the narrator is telling the child, not only listen to the teacher's words, but look at where it has gotten him. There's an exhausting, despairing sort of sense about these questions because the answers don't seem readily available. And there doesn't even seem to be any guarantee that there are answers to some of the deepest questions that we might be wrestling with or asking. That is humbling. Okay, so if that's true then, what next? 
And this is where I think the, the narrator offers a, a recentering. So again, we see a reminder of how to think and understand the words of the teachers. And then we're offered a caution not to go beyond the project and the words and the questions of the teachers. Then we're offered a recentering. The narrator offers us, offers his child a recentering. And this recentering is around the pillar of wisdom that, that, all, that would be familiar to all Israelites of this time, to all God's people in their spirituality and practice. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 through 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing whether good or evil. Now we began our study in Ecclesiastes by looking at this sense of, of, of wisdom being connected to fear of God, to fear of the Lord. In some ways, it's, it's synonymous. Wisdom could be this sense of shorthand for fear God. And remember, this isn't a fear that, that results in like paralysis, but actually a, a compulsion. This is a fear, this is an awe, this is a reverence that moves one in a certain direction. Just by way of, of survey of some of the uh, instances in, in wisdom literature and in other important Old Testament moments where this idea of fear of the Lord comes up. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Job 28, 28, and he said to humankind, truly the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. See, this is wisdom for Israel and for us because this is what is understood to be at the center of life with God. And we can see this in the way that, that the people of God and the way that people of Israel ordered and centered their lives. Deuteronomy 5.29, The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people. This is the Lord speaking. I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken if only they had such a mind as this, to fear me and to keep all my commandments always, so that it might go well with them and with their children forever. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 3. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Deuteronomy 6, 12 through 13, Take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name alone you shall swear. See, what the narrator is doing here for his child 
but also this text being a text for us. What is happening here is we are being reminded, the child is being reminded of what he would have already known, what he would have learned in Sunday school as a child. And what he already learned is this sense that one is to live in recognition of who God is. This mysterious, powerful, righteous, and holy other. And then living one's life in responsive obedience to that God. This is what a child is to learn. This is what a child is to know. In so many ways, the narrator is wanting to recenter this child around that part of what it means to be God's people, to live life with God. Ellen Davis says this, the shaping force of a fully human life is fear of God, that lively attention to where the real power in the universe lies, which all scripture tries to breed in us. See, it's really fascinating here in this moment. The narrator lets the words of the teacher have merit. We've seen that. He does not demean. He does not try to correct. He lets them have weight and he lets them there and he, he instructs us. He instructs the child of how to hear them. So there's an affirmation of the complexities and the absurdities and, and the difficulties and the confusions and the disorientation and the frustrations and the anger. There, there's an affirmation of those things by letting the teacher's words have merit. But then there's also this sense in which the narrator is telling the, the child, yes, all of that is true. but fear God anyway and obey. See, wisdom is living life knowing there is a creator and that I, that you, that we are not it. So much of wisdom is living life knowing that there is a creator and that we, that I am not it. John Goldengay, in describing what the narrator is doing here, is, is he says this, that, that the narrator is basically saying, don't lose track of the basics. Be in awe of God and express that commitment by doing what God says. See, part of the hard pill to swallow here at the end of Ecclesiastes is that the narrator seems to, to, to suggest that the son um, isn't to live in awe of God because it makes sense, but is actually called to live in awe of God even when it does not. And I suppose that's the question before us, before me. When we, when I recognize the futility in all the ways that I try to make meaning out of my life, when I'm stripped of everything, the question is, will I still follow? See, so much of the biblical witness suggests that a necessary condition to following in the way of God is to be continually confronted with what we need to let go of in order that we might follow more faithfully and in an unhindered way. See, the Bible calls this process repentance, a continual turning away from ourselves and toward God, turning away from our own pursuit of the good life 
back to letting God define what that good life is and to show us what living in that good life looks like. I can't help but think of that important moment in Matthew 4, and I'm sure that you remember it. Jesus proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This idea of repentance. Remember, stop, turn. Everything you thought you knew about the world, you need to reconsider it. You need to rethink it. You're about to be recentered. Right after Jesus makes that proclamation, we see Jesus call his disciples. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And he says to them, come, follow me. And then we see the disciples immediately, we're, te- we're told in the text, they leave their nets, their boat, and their father to follow Jesus. They're leaving so much of what gives their life meaning to follow after this one who invites them, invites them into life with him. They're leaving behind all that defined them, all that gave them their identity, that they might follow Jesus and let Jesus be the one to give their life meaning, to let Jesus give, be the one to show them who they really are, to offer them their true identity. This is the example of the disciple of following Jesus, that letting go, that turning away, that when Jesus says, follow me, we respond in obedience. Now, I think some of what Ecclesiastes is, is seeking to do is to help us look, look honestly at what our nets, our boats might be. The, like the things that we find our meaning in our identity and that we need to let go of in order that we might follow faithfully into the call of Jesus, of follow me. Ecclesiastes is constantly revealing the ways in which we might need to repent, things that we might need to let go of so that we might let Jesus lead us and shepherd us. See, for us as Christians, fearing God and obeying his commandments cannot be detached from Jesus Christ. To be in awe of God is to be in awe of what he has done in the person of Jesus, establishing his lordship over all. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the primary confession of the Christian. That is what has been revealed through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He, Jesus, is our Lord. To obey is to follow after him and let him lead and guide us moment by moment, revealing to us his kingdom and the new way of life that that kingdom demands. John 14, 15 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Like the disciples, like the son, to whom the narrator is instructing at the end of Ecclesiastes, We can't always be sure where this is going to lead. We hear the words of Jesus, follow me, and we follow, and we don't know always where it will take us. In fact, we suppose we do know well where it will take us, and we're about to be there in Holy Week to cross and to resurrection. But on the way... and ultimately to cross and resurrection, we aren't always sure or certain of what that means in the particulars of our life. But it involves, it involves difficulty, 
often involves sacrifice. It involves looking honestly about our self-interested ways. It involves repentance. It involves tears. It involves letting go. It involves being open continually to the reforming and shaping work of God in our lives. As we look at the life of Jesus and the disciples, we know the way. We know that Jesus bids us to come and follow him. And so often there are many things in the way or there are many things holding us back or there's so many ways in which we resist the invitation. And I think the work of Ecclesiastes and perhaps the work of this moment of Lent, of moving toward Holy Week is to help us be aware of all of those different resistances and to open our lives up so that we might be people who follow faithfully to the way of Jesus. So what does this look like? I have a friend who, who and she hasn't described this as a spiritual practice, and she, she's brought this up in, in our small group, um, but she says that she, she, can't, she doesn't know about a lot of things and she has a lot of doubts, but one thing she knows that she's being called to do is to just show up. And that's, her, that's kind of her mantra, just show up. And I think that is one of the most beautiful spiritual practices, the sense of just showing up. Christ says, come follow me, show up. Get in the way of that following. Get in the way of the stream of Christ. And, and I think that there's, there's a sense in which Jesus is, is, is calling us into that way. And Ecclesiastes might be revealing the ways that, that, that we resist or, or the things that we're holding on to that keep us from just showing up. And the question before us is, as Christ calls us to come follow him is, do we trust? Do we trust that Jesus and his way is best? Do we trust the good shepherd do we trust that the good life that he is going to present to us, offer to us, and show us that that is really, in fact, the best? Despite when everything about life seems to suggest otherwise, can we entrust ourselves to God? Now, I'd like to read to close Psalm 23. As I think about the one that we are called to follow and the one we are entrusting our lives to, the one that, like the child, is even being instructed to, to fear and obey, is also presented to us like a shepherd leading us and guiding us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. That is the shepherd that is leading us and guiding us. May we be people who entrust our lives into the hands of that good shepherd.
Thanks be to God.